From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. The question of whether Donald Trump can be removed from ballots for leading an insurrection is now in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll look at what the ruling could mean in Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Gun buyers may get a tax break if they purchase weapons during a proposed week-long sales tax holiday, but it may run into trouble. I'm Greg Bluestein. At their annual dinner last night, some Georgia Democrats said they were troubled by critical observations about President Biden's age from the special counsel who investigated his handling of classified documents. Plus, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones is playing a direct role in trying to punish Fulton DA Fonnie Willis. We have an exclusive interview. I'm Bill Nygut. Questions from the listener mailbag and our picks for who's up and who's down. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Guys, we've made it to the weekend, the big game this weekend, but also a really newsy week. What about, how, how was your week, Patricia? My week was great. It was um, extremely uh, newsy, I guess is the only word. A little <laughs> overwhelming. Um, but I was in, I'm pretty sure I was in town the whole time. So to me, that feels like a win. Bill, what are you looking forward to this weekend? Uh, you know, I've got to say, I gave up interest in the NFL a number of years ago. I just didn't like the NFL, the corporate NFL, the, the violence of it. But I got to say, I'm excited about the Super Bowl. I've gotten back into professional football a little bit. Sounds good. Well, Greg, I'm going to come to you, but I want you to tell me not about your weekend. I want to I want you to tell me about your Thursday night <laughs> because you were partying with the Democrats, right? Yeah, but man, I was so excited about talking about my weekend. Um, oh, well, my, I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't uh, want to rob you of your joy. As my wife is out of town, I've got kid duty solo. Uh, no. <laughs> So Thursday night, I was at the Democratic Party's gala, um, and usually sometimes they have big speakers. Actually, a couple of years ago, it was supposed to be President Biden, um, but it ended up getting canceled. Um, but uh, last night's speaker was North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. Uh, it was a couple hundred people in there, it was, it was, but as as we alluded to in the opening of the show, um, there was a pall over the entire crowd because um, as we were basically filing in, Everyone was digesting the news of the special counsel's report on on this issue about classified documents, but also, of course, that mentioned uh, concerns about President Biden's memory and mental health acuity. Yeah, and we had it in the jolt this morning that, and we were talking before the show started, this is kind of a litmus test. If you're a supporter of Biden, you might think that there were some cheap shots in the report, but if you're someone who has been concerned about Biden's mental acuity, um, then you might think that it wasn't that it's evidence that he's not fit for the job. Bill, what is your takeaway from what you heard in that special um, counsel's report about Biden's mental clarity? Yeah, after saying he wasn't going to be prosecuted. Um, uh, the special counsel, Robert Hur, who, by the way, was appointed by Attorney General Jeff Sessions during the Trump administration to be U.S. attorney uh, and was uh, close to uh, Justice William Rehnquist, one of the most conservative justices on the bench. Uh, it s- says a lot. So let's just quote a couple of things here. Hur, in his report, called Biden, quote, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory who has diminished faculties in advancing age. Um, he's not a gerontologist, to the best of my knowledge. He's never examined uh, Joe Biden. So it's hard to make anything of those remarks other than that they are extremely partisan. Patricia, what are your thoughts and what do you think how do you think Democrats, we'll get to Biden's response in a minute, but how do you think Democrats are responding to this? Do they have any good 
response to this? Yeah, so I think the um, comments, whether they're partisan or not, are incredibly damaging because they feed so directly into the narrative about President Biden's age and uh, exactly what is said in there, his diminished uh, capabilities. I think coming out last night after the uh, after the report came out was important for Biden to do. I mean, it wasn't a 10 out of 10. He uh, was quite ruffled and angry, but I think that's okay. And I think Democrats are uh, shrinking in a little bit and saying, oh no, I, I can't believe this is in there. I think that they would be better served to put the spotlight back on President Trump because this election is going to be about who voters least want in the White House. It's going to be more of an election of who are you voting against than who you're voting for. Um, Biden had his own complaints about the nature of those descriptions in the in the report. Even when you read the report, it feels a bit extraneous, um, although it's important to note the reason they said they're not prosecuting Biden, who did have classified documents and did take them with him, um, is that they said he would be such a sympathetic character on a witness stand that a jury would likely not convict him. So that is a that is a reason not to prosecute him. Otherwise, they would be saying uh, uh, Republicans would be saying, well, why in the world aren't you prosecuting him if you've just confirmed that he did indeed have classified documents? Mm-hmm. I've, I've always learned that you can you can learn more about the state of politics not from partisan attacks, but from what fellow Democrats are saying about fellow Democrats and Republicans are saying about Republicans. We certainly have seen a lot of Republicans attacking Donald Trump, or at least very squeamish about Donald Trump over the years. But the mood last night, it was telling to me because it was it was subdued. I mean, Democrats did this sort of rah-rah pep rally at this gala that you'd expect, but spent a lot of time roaming the room, talking to activists who, yes, thought it was a partisan hit job, but also their concern was that it exposed the voters' issues and their voters' concerns about Biden's age and mental ability, because whether or not this was uh, you know, a partisan attack and all that, it still highlights those issues that we've been talking about on the show, that others in the communities have been talking about for so long, concerns about his memory, concerns about Biden's age, concerns about whether he's up for a four-year term, in other words. So we talked about the fact that Biden was pretty angry and defiant at that after that report. He did call this press conference last night that was added to his um, agenda, his itinerary for the day at the last minute. Let's listen to a little bit of how he responded to reporters' questions about his mental toughness. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. <laughs> and just to get a little bit of context to that last <laughs> clip, that was towards Fox News reporter Pete Ducey, who um, Biden often spars with. It's kind of clear he doesn't care for um, him very much. And so that... If it, to me, that was kind of an example of his mental clarity because he knew exactly who he was saying that to last night. But if you don't have the context, maybe that didn't go over so well. Patricia, what were your thoughts when you looked at Biden's press conference last night? You said it was helpful, but also not a 10 out of 10. Well, I think people needed to see the president come in and have uh, answer his own questions, not have the press secretary answer his own questions. He doesn't do a lot of press. He does not do um, these big gaggles very often. He'll do them a bit on the rope line, but not much. So it does feel like this is a ra- relatively cloistered president. So he did need to go out. Now, he obviously was angry, which is understandable. Um, but instead of being angry at the press, I do think that he... Uh, should have turned it around and said, let's remember what else happened yesterday. Let's remember that there was somebody uh, in front of the Supreme Court because he's an accused insurrectionist and can he stay on the ballot in this country? I think that there's a kind of a more refined way to deal with this. But he did also say some of the classified documents that were uh, described as classified in the report, he said, were private documents instead of classified documents. He did have some important explanations to put into context what is now kind of galloping around the Internet. You know, it, it does strike me that Democrats can point to a great many accomplishments as he runs for re-election that President Biden has 
has had in his first term. Now, a lot of them just haven't gotten through to voters out there. The economy is in far better shape uh, than it has been. But voters apparently, based on polls, don't think that's the case. So he's been a good president, Democrats will argue. In fact, maybe a better than good president. But I've got to say, Greg, when you talk about wandering around the room last night and seeing Georgia, I'm talking to Georgia Democrats, it does strike me there's this unspoken feeling that, oh, we got to stick with this guy. Unfortunately, his age really is going to be detrimental in the campaign ahead. And I'm not sure that they're not kind of troubled by the person they've got running probably against Trump. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say real quick, in even even on the stage, I think it was Governor Cooper from North Carolina who, who even invoked something that Biden has himself said, which is, if you don't like me, just look at the alternative, yeah. right? Like so, so, and that's going to be it's going to be a really crystallizing effort once once the Republican field is set, once once they move beyond the the Republican primary. You know, we've already seen Joe Biden even declare Donald Trump the Republican nominee. But once you have that clearer contrast, you're, I think you're going to see a lot more money and resources and time and effort spent trying to. Uh, contrast the two candidates. Right, because even when you think about this issue of classified documents, we know Trump was charged, and even it's not getting as much attention, but in the report, the special counsel does make it clear that there were differences between Trump and Biden as far as once the feds started asking about the documents, were um, were they truthful? Did they try to cooperate? Things like that. That's where Trump got into a lot of problems. It wasn't just, oh, we found documents in your possession. It was he was accused of trying to, you know, thwart the investigation and hide the documents. Patricia? You're on mute. I apologize. You'd think I would know by now not to be on mute. Um, But my question for you, Tia, since you're in Washington, is do you hear chatter in the hallways? Do you hear behind the scenes Democrats lamenting Biden and their interactions with him before this report came out? Is that a part of the ether up there? I think so, because, again, Democrats, especially like the members of Congress who are, you know, going home on the weekends and hearing from constituents, particularly those who have a more progressive base, a more younger base. We've been saying young people are concerned about Joe Biden, who for them, if you're like a relatively new voter in your 20s, Biden is not your grandparents age. Biden is your great grandparents age. And that's just the truth of the matter. Um, and so I think at the same time, they it's Biden. It's a concern about age. Can he do the job physically, mentally? Is he up for the job? But their concern about Trump is would he dismantle democracy? Would he come in and be an authoritarian that is truly a threat, not just for maybe a four-year term having a bad president, but could change the fabric of our government permanently in a very damaging way? So even in the concerns on, you know, among Democrats, it's on two different levels. Bill, um, I want to get your thoughts about this again, not to put you on the spot, but among the politically Georgia team, Bill, you often (laughs) talk about the fact that you're the most seasoned among us. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, you're not 81, but, but you know, when it talks about getting up there in age and you're still working five days a week, you're fine. You know, what are your thoughts when people He's up bring in age? Every morning, every morning. I'm, yeah, wait, up four I'm, in the morning, you know. Wait, what? <laughs> um, Tia, thank you for that question. Uh, you're right, I'm not quite at Biden's age. I, I work out probably six, maybe seven days a week. I do, like, uh, lots of workouts. My my brain is still functioning pretty well. Um, I, I have to say that I know a lot of people who are Biden's age, um, a bit older than I am. And I do have to say that they are many of them wear their age a lot better than Joe Biden is wearing his age right now. I think that's part of the problem. He walks in a very stiff, halting manner. It is true that the forceful voice that he once had is long since gone. 
Um, so I, I don't think it's just about actual age in terms of your ability to function physically and mentally. I'll challenge any of you to my workout sessions. But, <laughs> um, but I think it is Biden in particular who just seems to be wearing his age more poorly than many others who are 81. And also, we have to note your mean shoe game, uh, your Jordan game. Uh, <laughs> I do like my Air Jordans. <laughs> so let's move on to kind of switching topics completely. Greg, you interviewed Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones yesterday, and it's amid all this talk about him becoming more outspoken and forceful in his criticism of Fulton <laughs> District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Now, I find this interesting because at the end of the day, she tried, she hoped to charge him as part of the RICO case, mm -hmm. um, but it was severed and it's going to be handled separately. But it's like, it's almost like he's poking the beast. Yeah. What did you learn when you spoke to Lieutenant Governor Jones? Yeah, Tia, it's so interesting because he is not shying away for his support for two separate actions in the Georgia Senate right now that go directly after Fonnie Willis. One is a committee that's looking into the backlog and the, the, the terrible state of conditions at the Fulton County Jail that, that Republicans will likely try to tie Fonnie Willis to in her handling of a backlog of cases. But the second is even more direct, and that is um, an investigative committee that actually meets today for the first time that has subpoena power and can directly investigate and directly look at um, Fonnie Willis's relationship with special Prosecutor Nathan Wade, which of course is the focus of that motion. I want to play a little clip of Burt Jones talking about uh, his view of this case. We've been watching this, uh, which uh, this show, and, uh, and uh, go on, and 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 we they she indicted eighteen different people, and 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 she's gotten what three plea deals, uh, four, four plea deals, and and, and, and find them what twenty five hundred dollars a piece, something like yeah, something like that, yeah. So I'm I'm just wondering what, you know, what the end game is um, for for this. I mean, you should literally spent tens of millions of dollars. I'd be willing to bet. Patricia, I want to get your thoughts about this because I thought it was interesting just hearing it. I'm hearing it for the first time. It's everyone else. It's like he's saying she's. I don't. The argument is like people are pleading guilty, but only four and only to lesser charges is that i don't know if that is doing what he thinks it's going to do but when you listen back what do you think yeah well so i think the overriding um theme of what's happening in the state senate and it's happening more in the state senate than in the state house which i think is notable because um it's led by burt jones it includes senator sean still who is under indictment by fonnie willis it includes brandon beach who was a target of the investigation as well um i feel like in the old political days maybe even five years ago um uh they would have said, you know, let the process play out. I've done nothing wrong. Let the investigation go forward. I will be exonerated. Now in this kind of very Donald Trump, hmm. leave no accusation unanswered, uh, destroy the people coming after you. Um, this is the new order. And this is saying this prosecutor um, is uh, conflicted. She's unethical. We're going to investigate her. We're going to prove what she's done is unethical. But I think the larger economic question here is, um, is the entire Trump investigation a political effort? Um, and that has cost a lot of money. The first talking points coming out of this committee, which is very unusual, it has subpoena power, unlike most Senate committees. Um, uh, they were talking about her relationship with Nathan Wade and is the money that was spent on these trips, is that a bad use of taxpayer funds if they can trace it? Um, I think they're really going after the entire investigation itself. I mean, they have their own members wrapped up in it. Um, and so uh, this is just a full frontal assault on what has happened to them. They're going to use their power to undermine that um, for their own purposes and then also for President Trump, whom most of the uh, Senate Republicans are supporting as well. I think that's such a really interesting perspective. You're right. It's it's not, we'll wait and see. We, we know we're innocent. It's full frontal attack. And one of the things that I want to uh, understand is, does Burt Jones now have a direct line into Pete Scandalakis, <laughs> the head of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council? 
when when uh, Judge McBurney severed uh, Jones from the investigation, he was a target. Uh, he did it because of a poten- of, a, of what uh, Jones was able to convince the judge was a conflict of interest because she had held a fundraiser for his Democratic, who, who the man who became <clears throat> later his <throat> Democratic opponent. That meant that Pete Scandalakis, in his role, would be the one who would appoint a new prosecutor to take on the case. How many months ago was that now? We've heard nothing from Scandalakis. We don't know whether there is going to be a new prosecutor assigned to the case. Maybe he's waiting to see how it plays out in Fulton County with the other defendants, but we need to know more about whether Burt Jones is going to face any further consequences. Well, Bill, I asked Lieutenant Governor about that in particular. Here's what he had to say uh, on the issue of whether or not he is worried about facing those criminal charges. I've never been worried about that. If I've got a fair person uh, sitting across the table from me, uh, I've never been concerned about because I know I didn't break any laws, Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty clear on that. Uh, And uh, so... Uh, but if you, if you got somebody who who is uh, politically motivated, uh, which she's illustrated she is, uh, then then the uh, the arena is not a fair arena. Yeah, I, I think, think. Go ahead. I was gonna before I get you in, Patricia, because I want to switch topics just a little bit. But I think it was cool, Greg, that you really pushed him on not just Fonnie Willis, but the fact that he still, at some point, we would assume, is going to have to answer Mm -hmm. to the charges just the way the others have. And I wanted to ask you, Patricia, is Fonnie Willis the new boogeyman? It used to be Stacey Abrams, but and she would be brought up in unrelated issues. She would be brought up when Republicans were in a contest with Democrats again, not when she was on the ballot. Do you think that's going to be what the role that Fonnie Willis plays, particularly this year? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I really had not thought about it like that. But um, yes, I do think that that's the case. But we also have to say that Fonnie Willis has opened this door herself. She kicked it open and left it open for weeks by not responding to these accusations against her, not putting it into context quickly um, and not uh, letting Democrats kind of know what they needed to know in order to defend her. And I was thinking recently about how different the Capitol would feel for Fannie Willis if she comes into the Capitol this session, because last session, if you go back, she was seen as an ally to many Republicans. She was asking for funds for more murder prosecutions, for more gang rape prosecutions, more gang activity. They were on the same page with a lot of things. And a number of Republicans would hold joint press conferences with Fannie Willis state senators. Um, those days are gone. And it is specifically because she has raised questions about her own judgment. So speaking of that and Fannie Willis in Tough on Crime, that's a good segue, Patricia, because you've written about a Senate bill that would create a tax-free holiday for gun purchases. And even though it's being marketed as like a way to encourage hunting, your column makes it clear that all gun purchases, even uh, ammunition and guns up to assault-style rifles, would be covered by this tax-free holiday. What is the state Senate doing? So the state Senate is um, proposing a tax-free holiday uh, ahead of hunting season. Uh, It's sponsored by Senator Jason Anavitarte, who was also a sponsor of the constitutional carry bill in 2022 to remove the licenses um, required to carry a gun in Georgia. I think he's very, very pro NRA. They would say that. He would say that. Very pro Second Amendment rights. Um, And uh, this, I think, is a follow-on to those kinds of efforts it's a smaller effort but very targeted and tailored toward gun owners um in the hearing where he presented the bill it was presented as a conservation measure to help cull herds of white-tailed deer um i did reach out to the department of natural resources and the herds of white-tailed deer are in fact 
getting smaller on their own. Um, I'm sure hunting helps, but <laughs> this was really, it was uh, pitched as a, as an effort to support sportsmen, but it is a quite a broad uh, tax holiday. And there are currently no tax holidays for any consumer goods right now here in Georgia. The um, school supply tax holiday is long gone. Members said they just could not prove the return on investment. And so I don't know that this bill is going to get a whole lot further, but it has passed the state Senate. And um, it's something I think it's a great message bill for a pro Second Amendment Republican. Um, I think the policy behind it is questionable. One one quick thing I'll add, though, it does include um, tax exemptions uh, or a holiday, at least for um, gun safes, gun uh, trigger locks, other safety measures. And there's a lot of support, bipartisan support among lots of Republicans and Democrats for something like that. Uh, I want to jump in just long enough to say that since we're on the podcast, on live radio right now, I want to get my message out. I know I need a Republican sponsor because a Democrat can never get it through. But, Greg, I want to uh, propose a measure that would give a tax-free holiday for the purchase of bulletproof vests if this thing gets very far. And it is such a good point that Patricia made that the back to school holiday tax uh, tax break is long gone. And how many? I mean, we used it, um, you know, for years. Uh, there's an energy efficiency tax holiday that was on the books as well. That's gone. And so bringing this issue up when there's not other tax break holidays is clearly a signal. And as Patricia mentioned in her column too, it doesn't look like it will get too much of a vetting in the House. We'll see how that goes. But it, it is a it is a definitely election year red meat for for Republicans. Could, could I throw something real? I know you got to get to a break to you, but Patricia, um, you're a pessimistic, or well, I shouldn't say pessimistic. You think that the House may not take this very far. Do you think that um, House Republicans think that there's more of a downside in terms of reelection chances than an upside to going along with a measure like this, or is that not part of it? Well, you know, there are more swing districts in the House than the state Senate. I think that's important to know. Um, and I think also the state House is a bit more um, moderated in tone and process than the state Senate at this point. And so it's something um, they have a lot on their plate over in the state House. And this was not a top priority. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. So, guys, we've heard a lot about how justices of the Supreme Court seem to signal that they're not too keen on holding up Colorado's, well, they're not too keen on allowing Colorado's decision to remove Donald Trump from the ballot there to stand. Now, it was just oral arguments yesterday. Um, there's going to be a ruling eventually. But let's talk about what it could mean. I wasn't on the show yesterday, but the three of you all were. You spoke with State Rep Derek Jackson, who has introduced a measure to take Trump off the ballot. Greg, give us the latest. Does that, I mean, he's a Democrat. It's unlikely to get any traction, yeah. but why would he do this? Yeah, and I'm glad you you mentioned Derek Jackson's uh, legislation. And it won't go anywhere, right? It won't even get a hearing probably under the Gold Dome, let alone get a vote or get passage in a Republican-controlled legislature. But he, he said very clear on the show, he understands that, right? He's, he, he gets the state of politics in Georgia. Uh, but it is a signal to, to other Democrats that, that his party is not letting President Trump, former President Trump, get on the ballot without a fight. And, and I'll be clear, there's a lot of pushback internally from other Democrats who say that they don't like this idea, that they want to beat Donald Trump at the ballot box and not either through legislation or in the court system, that they want to you know, beat him in November. Um, but for, for Derek Jackson, this was a way to, to also answer some of the concerns of his constituents. And he said that at a town hall meeting just a few weeks ago, some some activists, some local constituents were just saying, why aren't you guys doing more as Democrats to try to prevent him from running again? Uh, it won't go anywhere. There's also a, le a legis uh, legal action 
that has been filed against Burt Jones, lieutenant governor, to disqualify him from the from the ballot. It's already been rejected by a Butts County Superior Court judge, and it is being appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court. It has very long odds as well. Um, but they are efforts from Democrats here to, to say, hey, you know, we're not going to let Trump on the ballot without a fight. And also we should note that it was attempted in 2022 to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene yep. off mm-hmm. the ballot. And that did, um, there there were hearings and then it was appealed, but all the appeals failed. So in a first real test of whether the 14th Amendment could be used in Georgia, that did not work when it came to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and I want to bring up uh, Patricia, when the oral arguments were held yesterday, even some of the more liberal Supreme Court justices had questions about, um, like, for example, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson said, you know, in the Constitution, when it defined officers of the government that the 14th Amendment would apply to, it did not list president as one of those officers there. And she was like, if they took the time to list the officers and they didn't list president, why should this be applied to president? Justice Elena Kagan also raised the issue of whether a single state could be allowed to make a ballot access decision that affected a national race. What were some of your takeaways as you heard these arguments? Those two definitely jumped out at me, as did something that Katanji Brown Jackson said when she it, she said it was her view that the 14th Amendment was meant to restrain the power of the states in many cases, um, not to expand their power in elections. Uh, and this was following um, the Civil War and um, looking for a way to have a federal overlay of um, kind of basic values in elections in order to um, make sure that there were not insurrectionists on the ballot who, even if they were um, welcomed by their own home states, wouldn't have been welcomed in other states. So I thought that the the, the obvious skepticism of the liberals on the court, I found fascinating. And I think it's a great argument also for having more access to these arguments mm-hmm. in the Supreme Court, because your assumptions that somebody, somebody would be more or less favorable to Trump based on who they were appointed by just did not hold up yesterday. And I think that any decision that comes down after watching those arguments will feel like it uh, was well-reasoned up front, and uh, we'll have to see what happens afterward. I think there were some really fascinating aspects to this debate that we haven't talked about yet. I mean, one of them is that the concept of whether Donald Trump was an insurrectionist really didn't play a role in the hearings at all. There was no uh, definition of what it means to be an insurrectionist. It was uh, largely, as um, you and Patricia have said, built around whether one state should be able to remove a uh, candidate from the ballot. But, but also, I think, of significance is the fact that the court, in writing its opinion, it's possible they could pick up on a thread that came up in the hearings, which is, while the Constitution may not prevent you from keeping a presidential candidate off the ballot out of a race, there may be a different story once that person is elected to office, raising the possibility that someone, a Donald Trump, a Joe Biden, whoever, uh, could be subject uh, to being removed from office if uh, at that point the 14th Amendment, Section 3, can be triggered in a legal way, which I thought was mind bending. (laughs) Right. And it also seemed like the justices were saying Congress could also make some Mm -hmm. clarifications, could make some decisions. And we know that's unlikely to happen in the current Congress. But also, quite frankly, it's been, you know, don't want to do math, but it's been over 100 years with the 14th Amendment on the books and Congress hasn't felt the need to do any clarification um, as well. Greg, I want to bring you in, but let's remind people the justices could act quickly because Super Tuesday is March 5th. That is when voters in Colorado, Maine, and 13 other states will hold primaries. So this does need to be settled before Colorado votes, right? Yeah, they could act quick, quickly and they should act quickly because it needs to be settled. And it's not just Colorado. Their ruling will 
apply, we, we assume, and should apply to other states, no matter what they, uh, what, what they rule, because there's, a lot of, there's still that open question mark about whether or not Donald Trump can be on the ballot in other states as well. Maine is one of them that where, where there's also been a ruling against him. And so the courts and officials are looking to this U.S. Supreme Court for clarity on not just Colorado, but all these other states. And as you mentioned earlier, we haven't seen a direct legal threat in, in here in Georgia, uh, but this could close the door or open it to something in Georgia. And so that's also a reminder that Georgia's primary is March 12th. That's the week after Super Tuesday. And as our colleague Mark Mark Nisi reports, the last day to register to vote, if you want to vote in that March 12th primary, is Monday, folks, Monday. And of course, you can check your status um, on the state's My Voter page. You can see if you're registered, see if it's active, see if there are any issues. Patricia, my question to you, is Georgia's primary going to matter at all, whether it's for the Republican side or the Democratic side? It does not. It does not feel like it, Tia. It really does feel like this horse is out of the barn. I don't really see how Nikki Haley is still going to be um, significantly competing against Donald Trump after Super Tuesday. We will find out, of course, but I do think that um, both of these parties probably need to have a backup plan in mind. Um, No matter who is winning on Super Tuesday, no matter who is winning on uh, the day of the Georgia primary, this just feels like one of those years where anything could happen. And if anything could happen, we've learned in politics lately, it often does. Um, I think these uh, conventions, the DNC and the RNC are going to be some interesting gatherings, Greg. Yeah, and that's the subtext of why Nikki Haley's staying in this race, right? She's not quite going out there and saying, hey, this guy could end up getting uh, convicted and and thrown behind bars. But she's almost saying that. But for for her, and Patricia alluded to this, for her, the challenge is with South Carolina coming up and her far behind polls and Donald Trump in her own home state. And then Super Tuesday, same thing, same scenario for, for Nikki Haley. She's she's trailing Donald Trump in uh, most of the Super Tuesday states, if not all of the polls that we've seen. And if you want to prove that this is not Donald Trump's party, the Republican Party isn't Donald Trump's party, you have to beat him somewhere. And we and, don't know if there's a place where she could beat him right now. And that's how I feel like doing even worse than Nikki Haley is Dean Phillips. And he's His whole thing is like, Biden shouldn't have run. I can be the alternative. And Democrats just simply aren't buying it. And I agree a plan B, but that plan B is definitely not going to be Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips if all of these Democratic (laughs) primaries. Um, So let's bring it up to my neck of the woods um, for the, uh, the next few minutes. This week was a big week in Washington. We saw a border security deal collapse. And Republicans asked for the deal and then they rejected it. And now we're back to just speaking about foreign aid to Israel and Ukraine. Bill, what are your thoughts about the fact that Republicans rejected the same border security measures that for the past few months they had insisted had to be part of any conversation about foreign aid? Well, I mean, it is an object lesson in the fact that the Republican Party is now the Donald Trump Party. Um, He uh, insisted that Republicans turn down this deal that gave Republicans so much, not everything, but so much of what they were asking for. It didn't talk about things Democrats usually talk about, you know, a pathway to, if not citizenship, legal status in the United States, an extension of DACA, Uh, for uh, uh, people who are in the country under that program. It talks about more money for uh, border security. The border, the uh, U.S. border uh, uh, agency is supporting. They they endorsed this uh, deal. So Donald Trump, who we've said on the show before, says the quiet things out loud, said, I want this as a campaign issue. Don't pass this deal. It makes Biden look bad. The transparency uh, transparency of that, it's going to be interesting because it, it, it will voters, in fact, punish Republicans uh, rather than Joe Biden in the long run over the chaos, so-called chaos at the border. And we should note, um, bring it to Georgia, when it comes to, on the Senate side, the Senate did release this bipartisan bill that had the border security provisions plus the foreign aid and 
again, because of the opposition from former President Trump, because House leaders basically said it was dead on arrival in that chamber, Senate Republicans, by and large, rejected that legislation. Um, some progressive Democrats also, because they didn't want the border security provisions as well for for the other side of the spectrum. But we should note that Georgia Senators Ossoff and Warnock supported the measure, and they both, Patricia, when I talked to them, were kind of outraged. Um, Ossoff used words like cowardice, you know, to say Republicans wouldn't even allow us to debate this border security measure because Donald Trump told us not to. Yeah, and I think both of them have been using stronger language about the border than we really have seen Democrats use in a very long time, calling it a national security crisis, uh, demanding to have a solution put on the table. And that has really, it, this entire conversation has brought the Democratic Party a bit to the right on this issue, um, but it also has pushed the Republican Party to the right on this issue. And the statement that Warnock put out said, listen, this is not the bill I would have written, but it's a compromise and in divided government, that's what you do. And so Republicans did have a deal on the table that they've now rejected. Now they're gonna have to live with what's happening at the border because I think most Americans saw this episode and knew that Republicans had a chance to at least do something, not do everything, but it's hard to convince maybe independent and moderate voters, well, I don't wanna do anything because I only wanna do everything. That's not a great conversation. And in the House, um, they attempted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It failed essentially on a tie vote, but um, Steve Scalise, the majority leader, was out this week. He is back next week, Greg. It's looking like they'll try again, try to get it done before the new representative from New York is sworn in, which could affect their majority more. Do you think it's smart for them to go ahead and push through a Mayorkas impeachment at this time, Greg? I mean, look, Tia, and you covered all this in Washington, so I want to get your perspective, too. But what a disastrous week for, for House Republicans, you know, with their narrow majority failing on the Mayorkas uh, uh, impeachment um, even when they, I guess they had assumed they had whipped the votes and they had a, a, a decent vote count. We had, we heard from Republicans on the record saying, why would they bring this to the floor if they didn't have the votes, right? And then, of course, failing on Israeli aid as well and a, a separate vote the same night. I mean, it seems like Speaker Johnson just hanging by a thread right now uh, in, in Washington. But I don't know if there's a better alternative to them if you're a Republican rank and file member who's looking for someone else to, to hold that gavel. Yeah, I think they're frustrated, but they definitely don't want another speaker race because that was chaos for a month. Um, but I think that's another reason why we're likely to see the Mayorkas impeachment brought back up because they want to redeem themselves and get it done. And that'll make Marjorie Taylor Greene, our Georgia congresswoman, very happy because she's the primary sponsor of that impeachment resolution. So let's leave that there. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. All right, guys, it's Friday, so you know the focus is already on you, the listeners, as we get to your questions from our listener hotline, which is available 24-7. So make sure you call and leave us a message, and we'll answer them every Friday during my favorite segment of the week, the listener mailbag. So, Shaney B., you have a question like queued up for us yes for my favorite segment too if i say so myself uh this week we got a call from terrence who has a question about the trump case in fulton county 
between Tony Willis's uh, the fundraiser she had with Charlie Bailey last year and this news about her having a relationship with the Georgia prosecutor, what's the likelihood that like the Trump team can get this case tossed out? Thank you. Go ahead, Greg. It's the likelihood that the that the case will get paused. Um, we're going to learn a lot more about that in the next couple of days because there is a hearing next week with Fulton County DA Fannie Willis where she's going to directly respond to these accusations, to these allegations about misconduct. She's already acknowledged she has a relationship, a personal relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade, but there'll be a lot more of legal back and forth over whether or not that constitutes misconduct. Of course, Fannie Willis says it doesn't. Um, more than a th- about a third of the of the remaining defendants have now signed on to motions um, asking for Fonnie Willis to be disqualified, and and of course we talked earlier about Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones who could end up getting prosecuted in this case as well, not by Fonnie Willis, about his efforts to punish Fonnie Willis to 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 hold her accountable in his words. Um, I asked Burt Jones if he sees Fonnie Willis as fair game. This is what he said. What is fair game yeah. is the actions that she's done right now. If it, it, it has all the, it has all the, uh, uh, implica- it has all the uh, implications that she is prosecuting for profit. You know, I know, I know she's out there wanting to self, be a self promoter, mm-hmm. but now it looks like she's she's profiting off the taxpayer dollars, and that's what uh, this committee is, I think, going to be uh, looking at. If she's if she's taking it and use it as a tool to. Uh, pad her pockets. So, um, Patricia, I wanted to, before we move on, Patricia, when it comes to Fonnie Willis, you've written a lot about perceived missteps. Do you think it's a game changer now that she and Nathan Wade have admitted to being, um, you know, having a personal intimate relationship? Well, we're going to see because we have this evidentiary hearing coming up next week. And uh, Fannie Willis has not been in front of a microphone to answer questions about this or anything since the news came out. And we're hearing more and more from ethics experts who said, look, this has nothing to do with the underlying issues. But I do think the confidence in her judgment has taken a real hit. So I think this is to be determined where, where this goes from here. All right. Well, thanks for our caller. Thanks, Shaney B. Again, we love hearing from our listeners. So call us. Leave us a question. 404-526-2527. All right. We've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about who's up and who's down for the week. So, you you know, we're going to end on the positive note. So we're going to start with who's down first. Bill, you first. I know this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I think Donald Trump is down. And here's why. Most uh, Supreme Court observers think it is potentially possible that all nine justices will vote against uh, uh, Colorado's efforts to remove him from the ballot. That seems like a victory. But Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned about the court being a fair and honest nonpartisan broker. And so I think it's conceivable that he's going to be a vote on the other side when the immunity case comes before uh, the Supreme Court. Roberts may be the guy who says, in, in quietly to the justices, we can't rule in, Trump, in Trump's favor on yet another important case. We'll see how that plays out. Interesting. That's right. The Supreme Court does also have the immunity appeal um, pending. Okay, Patricia, your who's down? My who's down is Joe Biden. That The headlines yesterday should have been that he was not getting mm-hmm. prosecuted and that Donald Trump was in front of the Supreme Court as a an accused insurrectionist. Instead, uh, the, the subtext of that report is really devastating. They need to work on their messaging going forward to put this to bed. Greg? My who's down are the forces that want Medicaid expansion. I'm gonna go local. Uh, we still haven't heard Governor Kemp shut the door on the idea but he filed litigation a few moments after we got off the show last Friday and we did the up and down last Friday that sends a clear signal that he's not giving up on his plans to tie a work or education requirement to a far more limited Medicaid expansion that's only attracted a few thousand applicants. Still is not a dead idea to expand Medicaid, but that sent a signal to Republicans that he's going to double down on his own program. And my who's down is, again, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips. Um, If you... We've talked about Biden. He had a rough week. 
And in the South Carolina primary last weekend, Joe Biden still got 96 percent of the vote. Dean Phillips was in third after Marianne Williamson. So if you want to be well, the Biden replacement, her campaign too, who has since suspended her campaign. So, you know, he uh, he might. Democratic voters might be worried about Biden, but they're not turning to Dean Phillips. All right. Who's up, Patricia? My his up is State Representative Sharon Cooper. She passed a bill through the House this week to make Narcan available in vending machines. That is a kind of an edgy proposal to have anti-opioid drugs available for purchase. No questions asked. But it will save lives if this can get through the state Senate as well. So it's a very important bill, and she got it done. Bill, who's up? The the Georgia Democratic Party, they've renamed their annual dinner, which for decades was called the Jefferson Jackson Dinner, named after the slave owner Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, who in the Indian Removal Act uh, took thousands of Native Americans, many of them right here in Georgia, sent them on the Trail of Tears, uh, where many of them died. They've renamed it the Carter um, uh, Lewis uh, Dinner, uh, bringing it up to date. And my who's up, because I want Greg to go last, my who's up is Representative David Scott. He has faced a lot of criticism and questions about his own age and fitness for the job, but he's quietly been rocking and rolling. He announced some priorities with the legislative committee this week. He had a meet and greet with constituents. So he's really working hard to combat some of that criticism. And so he's my who's up. Greg, we're running out of time, but your who's up for the week is... My high school classmate, Usher, who, if you haven't heard, is hosting a little show on Sunday at some sporting event, and all of us North Spring Spartans are cheering him on. So go, Usher. Yes, our halftime show, the Usher Bowl, if you will. I am looking forward to seeing his performance and part of the people now scrambling. He announced a tour... The dates got gobbled up. He added more dates. He has, I think, three dates in Atlanta, for example, four in New York City. So it is the year of Usher. All right, guys, that's all the time we have for today. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.